According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. We'll hopefully wrap up this last deal here with the angels. Looking at the shepherds and then move on to his uh, presentation in the temple. The witnesses of Simeon and Anna. From Luke chapter 2. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to ensure that distractions are set aside, that we're here for the right reasons. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us as we have assembled this morning for the purpose of instruction. We desire to learn from your truth, Father, and so we ask that you would make us to be teachable. We ask, Father, for humility. We ask for a setting aside of distractions. We ask for a heart that seeks after your righteousness. We thank you for the promises, Father, that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall indeed be satisfied. And so, Father, feed us this morning from the truth of your word, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 2. We've been focusing on this event now for a couple of weeks. The angels that appeared to the shepherds says in verse 8, in this region, the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all of the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of good pleasure. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And we'll deal with that. It's not the statement about the swaddling clothes. It's the statement about the uh, today there has been a message of great news that uh, the Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Uh, verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at all the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Again, that's not swaddling clothes, baby in a manger. That's, today there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of good pleasure. So, that takes us down through verse 20. And uh, we will wrap this up and proceed on to... um, the, the uh, information here in the temple with Simeon and Anna and the circumstances there. But before we do, we last week were spending some time looking at the angels, looking at angel songs in particular. And uh, I want to go ahead and wrap these items up here this morning. This is, in fact, fourth, uh, the point four in our study, which... Uh, let 
Slide 14. There we are. The angel chorus. Glory in the highest places to God and upon earth. Peace among men of good will or good pleasure. The focus in the angelic realm was in two spheres. The heavenly sphere and the earthly sphere. And we want to start thinking in both realms. Not just caught up in the things of this earth. If we are totally focused on this world and this earth and the things here, then we're no better than the unbeliever at that point. Why would we simply be focused on the things of this earth? We're told, in fact, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We're told that our heavenly citizenship is where our attention is supposed to be. Since then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We, uh, these are some of the passages we focused on in our baptism service, for example, as we brought each baptism candidate up out of the water. That's our new position in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also shall be revealed with him in glory. We should be focused on the heavenly realities. This angel song focuses on the two realms. In the highest, speaking of the heavenly realm, the position that we have with God the Father, and then, of course, on earth. Uh, very similar things that we're going to start seeing throughout the process of Christ's ministry when he gives the so-called Lord's Prayer, for example, is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The interaction between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. He tells Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. There's a lot of things that's going to take a lot of homework and some uh, study to, to make clear, but... Obviously, just at first glance, we recognize that the interaction between heaven and earth is a lot closer than we are perhaps accustomed to thinking about. And that will come up again here this morning as we wrap up the last of these angel songs. Now this song serves to amplify the song that Isaiah witnessed in Isaiah 6.3. And so join me there in Isaiah 6.3 and we will examine that. It is uh, a part of a number of angel songs that we spent some time looking at last week. Isaiah 6.3 Last week we began looking at a number of the angel songs, beginning with Job 38.7, where the uh, morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The work of creation, the work of establishing the earth, being unique in all the universe, was a motivation for the angels to sing. Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. Bless, you, bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless, you, bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. So Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. We recognize that one of the angelic functions is not only worshiping and praising, but through that activity they are in fact blessing the Lord. Keep these things in mind. I referred to them last week. They're going to come up again. In fact, if you glance on down to uh, in, in Luke chapter 2, a little bit lower, where we're headed here shortly, uh, Simeon, waiting there in the temple or meeting the Lord there in the temple, actually takes the babe into his arms and blesses the Lord, blesses God with his praise and thanksgiving that he utters. And so we will get to that in Luke chapter 2 here shortly. We also have the psalm. Psalm 148, verse 2, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. And goes on in the larger context there to show angelic worship. And so now we arrive at Isaiah chapter 6. Another passage in just this short angel songs study. 
Isaiah chapter 6, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Notice how verse 1 parallels the earthly realm with the heavenly realm. Uzziah is a king, and he's sitting on a throne, but he dies. All right, He's a human king, and human kings live, human kings die, and then their son becomes king, and he might be good, he might be bad, and he might die, and he's going to die. And There's a parallel here, or a contrast, between the earthly and the heavenly. Isaiah is blessed to look into the heavenly, where, of course, we have an eternal king, who is righteous and glorious, reigning forever. So I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. That's Jehovah. I saw the Lord... You know, it may not be Yahweh in that verse. I'd have to look that up. Sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. So all the images you have of angels just, you know, being these uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian, blonde people with a couple of, uh, of swan wings hanging out their shoulder blades. Um, that's not the picture. That might be the That might be the Renaissance or the romantic, artistic view of angels. But that is not the biblical view of angels. Some with two, four, six wings. Some that are not even in human appearance whatsoever. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called out to another. Okay, This is a, an interactive, responsive type singing. And said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that one there is Jehovah, Jehovah Tsevayoth, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we have holiness in the presence of God. There's in the heavens, but also on the earth. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And which temple is that? That's the temple in the heavenlies, the temple where the Lord's throne is located, the temple where these angels are singing the praise of his holiness. Then he said, woe is me. This is Isaiah. I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. In the presence of this holiness, the only thing Isaiah could comprehend was his own unholiness. When coming face to face with the reality of God and his holiness, the only reaction Isaiah could could come to was that he was ruined, <laughs> that just being here was going to immediately slay him, having no qualifications to be here in this kind of holiness. For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So Isaiah's sin pattern, however it manifests itself, convicted him first and foremost of all in the realm of the verbal sins, the sins of the tongue. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. There he is again, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sibayoth. Now, obviously, when faced with our own inadequacy, when faced with our own um, inability to measure up, our own uh, undeserved nature, we're all unrighteous. There's none who seeks after God, no, not one. None of us are entitled to be in God's presence until, of course, he makes us to be so. And this is what immediately happens here. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. See, God has his process at making us to be holy, making us to be uh, acceptable in his sight. 
Isaiah was all worked up over his unclean lips, and uh, the angel said, you know what, the Lord's made provision for that. You might be unclean, you might be a fallen creature, but you can be a creature saved by grace, and all of the sanctification that's required is what God does on our behalf. A few more angel songs, just to wrap this up. Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel is one of the exiles that was taken away into captivity. He was a priest. He was a priest that was anticipating his priestly service, but he never would observe, he would never would engage in priestly service because prior to turning 30, he was swept away into Babylon and, and uh, the temple was destroyed and Ezekiel will never in his life function as a Levitical priest. But he's called on his 30th birthday, he's called to be a prophet. And he's given a number of visions and things that we've studied in, in an Ezekiel study a couple of years back. The Spirit lifted me up. Ezekiel made a number of spirit journeys, what we would think of as, you know, out-of-body experiences, where he was taken out of the body and he was taken through time and space. At one point, he was even ushered into the inner workings of a, of a, of a man's own soul, and he saw the idolatry within a man's soul. So he traveled into the temple, and he traveled uh, through time and space, and he traveled into heaven, and he traveled through uh, various locations. And here is one journey being described. The Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. And here's the song. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. So this describes a number of things. I find it interesting. We, we saw in Isaiah 6, God, the, the angels that were singing God's praises on his throne there in heaven. We see uh, with the birth of the baby in the manger, the angels singing the praises of God on earth. But here is the Lord now traveling. This is his traveling chariot. and He is visiting his people in their exile and the different things there where the traveling chariot moves about. And God takes his chorus with him. <laughs> when Jehovah is riding on his war chariot. Now he is the Lord God of hosts, of course. And he's got his armies, absolutely. But he also has his musicians. He has his choir. He has his chorus. Sometimes it boggles the imagination. Why did the Lord have Israel marching around Jericho singing and blowing trumpets? Why did the Levitical priesthood have trumpets in the first place and music? Because that's what the Lord likes. That's what the Lord surrounds his throne with. And the earthly throne that he established follows that pattern. I thought it was remarkable watching all the army bands and different musicians and things at President Reagan's funeral. Did you, I don't know if you watched any of the coverage and so forth on the news. And um, it seemed like for a whole week there it was all, you know, all Reagan and all Memorial. And actually I kind of liked that week. <laughs> but there were so many bands that were playing and trumpets and marchers and all kinds of things. And, and uh, it was just amazing that we had so many musicians you know, we talk about military shortages and troop shortages and we're rotating troops into Iraq and Afghanistan and calling up National Guard units and calling up reserve units and all of this. And it just seemed that, you know, if we cut the band down a little bit, we'd have plenty of, <laughs> plenty of soldiers that could go invade another country somewhere, you know. But there's a place, even in a Gentile nation, even in 
our nation for a military uh, band structure. And they're not singing praises of the Lord, but the Lord's army is. So it's interesting here. We have the throne room scene in Isaiah. We have the chariot scene in Ezekiel. We have the earth scene where the uh, angels are singing God's praise. This is their oppor- This is their work assignment to sing his praise, as we saw in uh, the Psalms that we looked at, Psalm 130. That's their work assignment, to praise the Lord. They'll have other work assignments once the human race is exalted and glorified into eternity future. They will be rendering service to those who inherit salvation. Okay? Sometimes I think we lose track of what angels are designed to do because we spend so much time focused on what they're doing now or maybe what they did in the past. And we're not identifying with what the scripture says their ultimate destiny is, um, which is to render service to redeemed humanity. A couple of other places. Luke 15. Here's an interesting angel song. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is it that triggers the angels to start singing? Well, one item that triggers the angels to start singing is observing in the human realm and observing grace in action. Because a sinner who repents is testimony that our Father is a Father of grace. Remember, we are the witnesses of grace and that the angels are observing the manifold wisdom of God, His grace in action through the church. And so when a sinner repents, now this can have an application of, of an unbeliever who places his faith in Christ and gets saved. Okay, An unbeliever who comes to the cross, accepts the sacrifice, and becomes a believer. That could be a context here, or it could simply be a believer who's gone into reversion. A believer who's gotten out of light, he's walking in darkness, he's getting all tangled up in a, in a whole cycle of interlocking sins and then finally decides okay that's enough divine discipline there <laughs> you know divine discipline is an amazing thing because it's kind of like uh, you know it's kind of like the the um, self-service pump at the gas station you know you know, nowadays you have a hard time finding any full service pumps where the guy come out and fill your gas and check your oil. And I think Oregon's the only place that has it anymore because state law, you can't pump your own gas. And so you drive through Oregon and you get out of your car and act like you're going to pump your gas and they think you're nuts. They say, get back in your car, I'm going to do that. And they pump your gas and they check your air pressure and oil and all the rest of that stuff because their government found fit to pass a law that says you can't pump your own gas. <laughs> all right. So think of divine discipline, though, as the self-service pump rather than the full-service pump. Because ultimately speaking, how long is divine discipline going to last? Well, how long are you going to remain in carnality? (laughs) When are you finally going to be humbled and repent and say, All right, Lord, I've had enough of that. You've taught me. I'm miserable enough. It's, it's increased and increased and increased and increased. And, you know, I don't really want to know what that next step is. Because this last step is hurt enough. And so I'm humble. I confess. I repent. I reject all that walk of darkness. I get back into the Word of God. Okay? That's what divine discipline is geared to do. It's geared to promote that repentance. It's geared to bring back a sinner. Which, of course, benefits us. But in the angelic realm, it prompts another chorus. What is it that sparks an idea? Now, I'm not a musician. 
All right. I, I, I like to sing. I can't sing very well, but I like to sing. I can appreciate music and I can appreciate others who do it well. <laughs> All right. But what is it that sparks a desire in a musician to write a song? Okay. Now, maybe um, we're all creative. I believe this is a part of being created in the image of God. We're all creative in some way. We have an aspect of creativity, and your creativity may not be music. Your creativity may be art. It may be dance. It may be um, uh, it may be writing. Okay, but whatever it is, if you're going to write a song, if you're going to write a poem, if you're going to write a mystery, if you're going to uh, compose, if you're going to uh, paint a picture. All right, Alethea is very artistic. Uh, she likes to draw. She brings me a picture and she says, you know, do you like my picture? <laughs> I usually say no. Unless there's swords, dragons, or people dying, it's not a good picture. Okay? So she drew one with swords and dragons and people dying. And I said, man, that's a great picture. I like that. What I'm saying, I'm a little off track here, I'm saying we're artistic in some way. Okay? Now, if I'm going to compose a song, what am I going to sing about? What event is going to spark me to compose a song? And then what kind of song am I going to compose? Or if I'm going to paint a picture, what kind of picture am I going to draw? Or paint? Or color crayon? Or chalk? Or whatever, you know, I'm going to use to create this piece of art. It's whatever I want, whatever I'm motivated to. I want to compose a, a, you know, a country western song. I want to compose a heavy metal rock and roll song. I want to compose a, a classical music violin song. What do I want to compose? Well, whatever I want in my creativity. Okay. So here's angels, and what sparks their their uh, their singing, what sparks their joy, is a sinner who repents. And the opportunity then to launch into another chorus of how faithful the Lord is in all of his glory and all of his ways. Alright? There's a long context there in Luke 15, but just keep in mind, that's the, uh, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the, uh, the lost son, the prodigal son, the parables there in Luke 15, gives us the context for that verse with reference to the angels and their joy in heaven. All right, four passages in Revelation, starting with Revelation 4. Here again, the scene is in heaven. And we have these four living creatures. And they're described here. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me. Now, this is John. Now, he didn't know if he was in the body or out of the body, but the Apostle John was caught up to the third heaven, and he was allowed to see things similar to how Daniel was allowed to see things, Ezekiel was allowed to see things, Paul was allowed to see things. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things. What must take place after these things. Remember chapters 2 and 3 focused on the church. The seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. The, uh, the prophetic messages with, uh, pertaining to the duration of the church. And, or the course of the church and so forth. But then chapters 4 and following is the revelation to John. Regarding what must take place after these things. In other words what follows the dispensation of the church. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne. That doesn't mean he was in fellowship. It means that he was spiritually transported to the heavenly realm. 
And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. He gets to see a visible representation of the Father. Now keep in mind, normally this is not possible. No man has seen the Father at any time. We cannot see the Father. God is spirit. And yet, John is transported in spirit. He enters into a, a spirit dimension and he views the Father here on his throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and and golden crowns on their heads. There's a whole lot of debate as to who those elders are, and I won't go into that this morning. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. That represents the Holy Spirit, but there's a whole lot of teaching in there to understand the seven spirits of God and seven lamps as being a a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. This is where we get our hymns where we sing about the crystal sea. And on the center... Around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. These are clearly angelic beings. Regardless of what you do with the elders, these are certainly angelic spirit beings. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Very similar to the cherubim that we saw in Ezekiel. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. It's the same song we heard in Isaiah chapter 6 of holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So here is their angelic song. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever. And ever, verse 9, then the 24 elders in verse 10 will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, okay, and whether these are humans or angels, I'm not going to address that this morning. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. This is a paterological worship song addressed to the Father. It's important that we understand that, because it leads us into chapter 5, where a new song is taken up. Alright, so chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was was able to open the book or to look into it. Keep in mind there are three dimensions of existence, in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book. Or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. Now notice the elder told him about a lion. But instead John sees a lamb. Okay? Very important. He doesn't see a lion. The lion will go forth shortly. But for the moment... Before the lion can go forth, the lamb must appear. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Remember, when the lamb was walking this earth, he was not functioning in his own sovereignty, in his own omnipotence, in his own power, in his own might. 
He laid aside all those privileges, and Jesus Christ walked this earth under the filling and control of God the Holy Spirit. The same resources you and I have available for us. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The Son received the book from the Father. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Notice the interaction again between heaven and earth. Because the prayers of the saints, where are they happening? They're happening here on earth. They're happening in our prayer rooms. They're happening in our prayer meetings. They're happening in our husbands and wives praying together. They're happening in our families praying together. Okay? Things which need to happen more often. <laughs> Got that look from the back row. Alright? Are the bowls uh, are the bowls empty these days? You know, are the angels up there scraping the golden bowls trying to muster as much incense as they can? Because our prayers are sadly lacking. Alright, so I spent eight verses trying to get to verse nine, and here we are. And they sang a new song, okay? They've gone from a patrological song to the Father, and now they're singing to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So there's the new song. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Okay? This is the description of the angelic hosts, Old Testament, New Testament alike. How do we number them? They are myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice. And I believe, I wasn't going to tell you this, but I believe that the elders are in fact angelic beings, spirit beings. And I know I'm in the minority there. I know a whole lot of people try to make them apostles or elders of the tribes of Israel. And, you know, 24 is 12 and 12, and we've got 12 apostles and 12 uh, tribes of Israel and different things. All right, and uh, I think there's a whole realm of speculation there when this is uh, an angelic context. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now this is a song. We had a song to the Father, a song to the Son. Now we have a song to the Father and the Son. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. All right. Didn't mean to read the whole chapter, but there it was. Angels' songs. Now notice, angels sang at creation. Angels continued to sing his praise throughout the Old Testament, whether he was in the throne room or traveling on the chariot. Angels sang when the Savior came into the world. Angels sang when the Lamb that was slain arose to the Father's throne, the great ascension, taking the after the cross, t- taking the uh, the book of life. Angels continue to sing throughout the unfolding of the Father's plan. Remember, the angels aren't omniscient. The angels don't have all the the plan from Alpha to Omega. The Father has the plan from Alpha to Omega. And in the passages in Isaiah where he's rebuking the angels, he says, let them lay it out if they can. 
Let them lay out Alpha to Omega. They can't do it. Only God can do that. Remember uh, things in which angels long to look. The mystery that was revealed to the church was was a huge surprise (laughs) to the angelic realm, elect and fallen angels alike. All right, the last of these then, chapter 7 and chapter 19. When all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Now, it's interesting, while this is happening uh, in the heaven, there is um, literally hell on earth. Antichrist and his plan is going forth, and yet there is a remnant that has been sealed. 144,000 have been sealed. God the Father is protecting people on earth. And the things that are going on here in chapter 7, the number of those who were sealed in verse 4 and following, and there's 144,000 there, 12,000 per tribe, and heavenly worship going on with, with not only humans that were resurrected and singing, but joining the angels there in the singing of the Lord's praise in verses 11 and 12. Finally, Revelation 19 a passage that we're accustomed to focusing on wrath and judgment and destruction. Well, we have wrath and judgment and destruction. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Well, what thing? Well, that's the whore of Babylon in chapter 17 and chapter 18, the destruction of all that evil. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. That's praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belonging to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth and her, and her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So angels singing at creation, angels singing at throughout the Old Testament, angels singing at the birth of the Redeemer, angels singing when the, when the Lamb makes his triumphal entry into heaven, angels singing throughout the dispensation of the church when sinners repent, Angels singing throughout the tribulational age of judgment, watching the Father's judgments, watching the Father bring that realm to destruction and and having the kingdom handed to His Son. Angels are singing throughout the whole process, testifying to the Father's glory as His plan unfolds. The second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Can we really sing Hallelujah when judgment's being inflicted? Absolutely. Because it's God's holiness and righteousness at work. It's for His own glory. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. Now I want, you, I want to ask you a question here. We have the redeemed that are singing, okay? They're up there with their harps, all right? We've got angels that are singing, all right? And now comes this new voice that's introduced in verse 6. Whose voice is that? The voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters. Who's that? Well, in chapter 1, when the Apostle John heard the sound of many waters and he turned and he looked, he saw Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus Christ walking in the midst of the lampstands, holding the stars in his hand. Like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. I believe Jesus Christ enters in there with a solo in uh, this particular chorus.
Alright, so there's a lot of singing. And maybe that's, uh, you know, a side trip that took us the better part of a week. But it's significant in terms of the reign of Jesus Christ, in terms of the life of Jesus Christ. Remember, the mystery of godliness that we gave you in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh. So this has to do with Jesus Christ emptying himself of his glory, entering into, not just entering into humanity, but entering into the womb into this infant, into this newborn that grew and it's just it's staggering. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is the gospel account summarized in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. So we are looking at the angel chorus in Luke chapter 2. Finally, to wrap up this portion, point 5. The shepherds applied faith to the gospel message they had heard. The shepherds applied faith to the gospel message they had heard. They received a message. They acted upon it. They left those fields. They went to to check out the blessings of what the Father had supplied them. Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Applying faith to the promises. Actually going forth to observe what the Father has provided. You know, it's... We could see the shepherds out here and they could acknowledge the the truth of what they'd heard. <laughs> and uh, they could sit out there watching their sheep and talking to one another and saying, uh, well, you know, do you believe what, what those angels were telling us? You know, I can just see them out there in the fields drinking coffee, watching their sheep at three in the morning and, yeah, you know, I believe it but not doing anything about it. I believe it. Oh yeah, I think it's true. Meanwhile, just going on with their shepherding life, finishing their shift, passing it on to the day shift when they got there in the morning, going to sleep. I think there's a whole lot of um, believers even that understand the gospel message, accept it as being true, and then not doing anything after their salvation. Well, these guys immediately picked up, acted on what they'd been told, and went to check it out. Went to find that babe wrapped in the swaddling garments, went to see uh, these things. So they acted upon it. Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found the way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. See, they have a witness to communicate. They have a witness because they received a message. And if they don't tell what, what happened out there in the field, who's going to tell it? <laughs> it's kind of like believers in evangelism. If the church doesn't get burdened to go give the gospel, well, who's going to give the gospel? We're the only ones that can give the gospel. And so they made known all the things 
the, the statement which had been told them about this child. Not that he's going to be wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Mary can see that. She wrapped him in the cloths. <laughs> All right? But the statement, today in the city of David there's been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, Mary, do you think Mary had any doubts? <laughs> I mean, she knew she was a virgin. She knew that she was pregnant. She knew that she had a baby. Okay? Joseph was taking it by faith that she was a virgin, believing the angel's message that she was a virgin, married her. She had a baby. He knew that he hadn't had sex with her and that this wasn't his child. And yet, here come more witnesses. We're going to see more too. Not just the angels, not just the shepherds. They're going to go into the temple and they're going to have two more witnesses waiting for them there. Simeon and Anna coming up here in chapter 2. All witnessing and testifying this, that this is, born in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. Subpoint A. The sign was true. What Weiss defines as a sign is the unusual and distinguishing token of identification. <laughs> That's the sign was true. The unusual and distinguishing token of identification. A baby in a manger. Okay? That was true. It's not the center of the passage, but it's the token that gives the evidence that everything else is true too. Okay? Let's not get distracted by between the message and the sign. The sign gives evidence so that you pay attention to the message. The sign was true. Weiss describes the sign, the Simeon, as the unusual and distinguishing token of identification. I, I've highlighted this a couple of times now, but it's just so, it's so uh, vivid where the angel's message is in verses 10 and 11. And then in verse 12, in a very brief fashion, he says, and this is the sign. This will be a sign for you. This will be a, an unusual and distinguishing token of identification for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then that's it for the sign because in verses 13 and 14, we're back to message again. We're back to the angelic chorus. We're back to what they were singing about. The, the, the issue here is not the sign. It's not the miracle. It's not the sign. That's simply the token that when validated and proven true, gives additional confirmation to believers that have to walk by faith and believe what God says. See, we don't want to get confused between the sign and the truth, the sign and the message. The Jews, will see throughout the ministry of Christ, were sidetracked by the miracles, sidetracked by the signs. Well, we want another sign. Give us another sign. Give us another sign and we'll believe you. Well, how many have given up to that point of time? You know, one more is going to tip the scales there? They didn't want to listen to the message. They just liked, you know, loaves and fishes getting multiplied. They liked, they liked getting fed. They wanted a king that feed them all day long. Uh, but to acknowledge the sign as credentials for, of divine authority and to pay attention to a message? Wait a minute. <laughs> if I pay attention to a message, then I have to humble myself to the message. I have to obey the message. And that was, that was further than most of the Jews in that time wanted to, wanted to take it. So the sign was true. Point B, since the babe was indeed lying in a manger, 
the much more significant message must also be true. Christ the Lord has been born on this day as Savior. Since the babe was indeed lying in a manger, the much more significant message must also be true. Christ the Lord has been born on this day as Savior. Remember, the issue is Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord was not born as ruler. He was not born as conqueror, although he will rule and he will conquer. But the purpose for this birth, the purpose for first advent in the humanity of Jesus Christ, was Savior. And that's why he took the name Jesus, and we'll see that again. We've seen it already, we'll see it again. The much more significant message must also be true. The token was validated. The message must also be true. Point C. The shepherds delighted in not only receiving good news, but in becoming witnesses to the gospel as well. The shepherds delighted in not only receiving good news, but in becoming witnesses to the gospel as well. See, euangelizamai is I bear you good news. And as recipients of good news, we then have the opportunity to go out and be bearers of that good news. In fact, we're the only ones that can go out and be bearers of that good news. Because we're the ones that have had that good news entrusted to us. If, if, if we don't, you know, like, like the rhetorical question, how should they believe if, you know, if, if no one is sent? If no one goes and no one preaches, then... then then, then who's going to deliver the report? And who's going to have a report delivered to believe? We've got to go forth and give the gospel message. And the, uh, the, the terrible thing is just to slough it off and say, oh, well, somebody else will handle that. You know, I'm not an evangelist. He didn't give me the gift of evangelism, so somebody else will take care of that. <laughs> well, what if the evangelist has the same slacker attitude you have? <laughs> maybe he has the gift of evangelist, but he's blowing it off himself, saying, oh, well, somebody else will take care of that. All right? We're all commissioned to bear witness. We have it here, not only do they bear witness to Mary and Joseph and this. You know, it's interesting. Notice who's present. Mary, Joseph, and baby in verse 16. Notice who has to toss these things around in their thinking. It's Mary, in verse 19, pondering them in her heart. Now, what does this say about Joseph? <laughs> Was he so thick that it didn't even give him anything to think about? Or was he already so convinced in his faith that this additional witness... Um, didn't didn't spark the additional pondering and the additional chewing and, and thinking and wondering because he's already accepted by faith the message when the angel came to him in the dream and he married Mary and, and was her husband throughout the pregnancy? Is he already so um, uh, strong in his faith and in his uh, understanding of doctrine that, that he's not, uh, not even questioning these things any longer? All right? Just something to consider, because this passage doesn't address Joseph and his thinking at all. But we find Mary doing an awful lot of pondering. Tossing this around, tossing that around, trying to figure out how these things fit together. Not only does it happen here, but notice uh, when he's 12 years old, she's still uh, 
You know, she's the one that, that calls him to task for ditching him at the at the uh, caravan and not going back to Nazareth. And she says, well, you know, where have you been? Why have you treated it this way? Uh, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it you didn't, you, that you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. But now notice in verse 51, when he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. No reference there. Joseph doesn't speak a word in that event. And again, no mention to what he was thinking or the ideas he was tossing around or any struggles that he might be having with it. All right. There's uh, more of this too. Quite remarkably, in, in the message of Simeon here in this chapter, he blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, verse 34, Behold, this, ch- this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. Mary's going to encounter some difficulties here that Joseph will not encounter. To the end, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay. Now, Joseph does die here shortly, but he lives at least 12 years. And yet he is not included in the uh, message of Simeon. And we'll spend some time on that next week as we focus on Simeon. Let's get a... Uh, oh, let me wrap up the shepherds here. Um, verse 20. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as been told them. See, their communication ministry didn't end with Joseph and Mary in the manger. But they went back to their work assignment. They went back to their fields and they continued in their... Uh, speaking ministry, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. All right, so they have an ongoing witness beyond just simply this one night or this one early morning at seeing the baby. That witness continued as they uh, returned back to their uh, to their place of employment. All right, we'll get a quick introduction here to Simeon. We've got about eight minutes left. First of all, any questions? I guess I can slow down and take some questions at this point before we move on and look at Simeon and Anna in verses 21 and following. Anything at all with the shepherds, with the angels, with the humanity of Christ? The, uh, yes. Do angels worship? It is called worship. It is kind. It is a function for all. It is a function for all. The priests can serve to lead that. The priests can serve to teach, so that the people understand that. But worship is a function for everybody. In the earthly realm, in the Old Testament, all of Israel was called to worship. But the priests and the Levites would lead them in that worship. Would teach them in how to worship and and teach them about the Lord so that they could worship. But worship is a is a function for the all creation. In fact, for even um, sun and moon and stars and all of the uh, the things that are mentioned there, the Lord's worthy of worship from everything that He's created. Okay. That's a good question. Anything else? Heidi. The sword piercing. We'll have that coming up next week and the week after when we talk about Simeon and his message. Yep. You want me to give it away right now?
<laughs> you know, there's uh, there, there there's difficulty that occurs anyway in generational transitions, <laughs> in um, adult sons, adult children, and uh, it's it's interesting in that. Um, we're going to see a number of places throughout the ministry, starting with the, the, the wedding at Cana, where Mary's trying to influence Christ to do something about this lack of wine. Um, but when she's got her other sons and, and daughters there traipsing around with her and, and uh, waiting for him to get done with Bible class so that, you know, she can, I don't know why she wasn't in Bible class, but waiting for him to get out of Bible class so that she can talk to him or ask him questions and things. There's, there's a lot of, Glimpses of Mary throughout the gospel record that become quite, quite interesting that um, point to a number of issues that I think all parents face with. And that's why I'm glad that this family class on Wednesday mornings tends to be more geared towards families, tends to draw out more application with raising of children and conflict that we face in our families and our marriages and all the rest. Um, but the sword piercing even her own soul is described here in verse 35. The message, first of all, is a worldwide message in verses 29 through 32. And then he turns to uh, them and he blesses them. He pronounces a blessing upon the husband and wife, but he has particular words to Mary with respect to the fall and the rise and a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul. You know, Joseph isn't going to live long enough to see the cross, but Mary will. In fact, Mary stands right there. And uh, seeing, not like the Catholics say, she's not the priestess that's doing the sacrifice, but seeing her son offer himself. You know, think about for 4,000 years the whole promise of the seed of the woman. Every woman since Eve, the the the... There's pain in childbirth, but the joy that a son has been born into the world, the, 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 the delight for, for women and the bearing of children is, especially in the, the, the seed of the woman promise, is that it's going to be through this difficulty that the Savior is going to be born. And all the women from Eve to Mary that went through the anguish of having a child had the promise that Someday, a woman's going to have a child and redeem the human race from all of this sin and all of this death and everything else. Well, now Mary is blessed by grace to be the one chosen to give birth to that baby. What a blessing. Great, you know, the, 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 the uh, greatest among women or the, the praise that's offered there in terms of other women will call her blessed. And yes, women can call her blessed. Think about being the mother of the Savior. There's a blessing in that. But there's a sword to go with that, too. <laughs> you know, the blessing of giving birth to the Savior and raising him and teaching him and watching him and all this. Well, that's that's a blessing. But what about watching him at the cross? Okay. She was appointed for that also. So. A lot of this is going to come up, I think, in some upcoming classes here when we start to understand the nature of our own cross that we're supposed to take up and, and follow Christ. When we understand that, yes, he's poured out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for us, but do we have conflict also that we have to endure? Absolutely. I think if we just have an immature view of the Christian way of life and get this millennial idea of you know, a bed of roses, that's, that's delusional. 
we will have conflict, and it hurts. You know, we get faced with uh, with testings that just that just hurts. Okay, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Well, take that verse and then apply it over to Hebrews where the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing center of soul and spirit and is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Stop and consider Jesus Christ as the word and stop and consider what happens when under the word of God that piercing um, lays all things bare. I mean, we might hide certain things <laughs> and we can live in our own self-delusion and we can act like everything's going great but when the Word of God pierces us and lays it bare, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Ultimately speaking, that is where, that's where we're all headed. And, and you and I can be there right now in the, in the dispensation of the church, walking in the Word of God. But ultimately speaking, because Jesus Christ goes to the cross at the point of time down the road where he rules this world in glory, this is going to happen on a worldwide basis. So there's two different ways that we can be looking at this prophetically. Um, but with respect to the word of God on an individual basis piercing the soul that's not just Mary's uh, destiny that's all of us that's each and every one of us when we humble ourselves to the word and not not picking and choosing what we want to listen to and not having our ears tickled but humbling ourselves to the word and the word hurts because you know the, the day we got saved we weren't we weren't perfect and wonderful and God wasn't ready to take us home <laughs> We've got a lot of work to do to get us there. And things that have to be swept away and scraped away and scar tissue to be removed and transformation that has to happen and, and immature thinking that has to be matured and, and uh, sin patterns. And, and there's a lot of growth that has to happen. And, you know, our flesh doesn't like it. <laughs> the humanity doesn't like it. But this is a part of growing up. It's a part of the Word of God convicting the heart. So, uh, yeah, we're going to spend some time on that. We're going to look at it not just from Mary's perspective, but looking at that as, as actually being significant for every single believer. And the reality that we have in, in the church age, more than any previous dispensation, the nature of the Word of God, the reality of the Word of God that we have unfolded is, uh, is extraordinary. So we're going to focus on that there too. Okay? And it's it's good. It's good to see how... The word of God hurts. It's good to see how um, conflict and testing produce grief. The Lord even admitted it himself. He said, he said his soul was in agony to the point of death. He's sweating great drops of blood. Wasn't uh, exactly having a, a party there in the garden. We have to go through these tough things. And in some cases it involves our adult children and what they're going through. So... Um, Anyway, we'll focus on those things there too. Kind of appropriate given that we have a fair amount of testing in that regard going on right now with uh, different families at Austin Bible Church and different uh, teenagers and adult children in their 20s and 30s and 40s and, <laughs> and parents that, uh, that learn an awful lot about prayer when, uh, when these things start happening. So, All right, Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, for... The uh, examples that we have in Scripture, we thank you, Father, that uh, that you sent your Son in uh, the humility of humanity, uh, 
born with a human birth, growing through infancy and childhood and young adulthood and adulthood, faced with conflict, faced with uh, four unbelievers uh, for brothers that uh, didn't even get saved till after the uh, after the resurrection, and uh, losing their human father and all of the circumstances there. I thank you that we have a Savior who knows the uh, struggles of this earthly life, who can relate to where we are in our weakness, can relate to where we are in, in uh, the hunger and financial test and employment test and everything else. And that now, Father, at your right hand in glory, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. What a blessing. And so I thank you for that. I also thank you for a Bible that doesn't doesn't hide things, doesn't gloss things over, doesn't paint a rosy picture, uh, Father, when the reality is that we are under conflict. And Father, I thank you for that as well. I pray that each one of us would learn how to humble ourselves to the truth. We would learn how to accept it when the Word of God pierces. That uh, when, the, when the Word is piercing, that we don't insist on uh, making excuses or, or denying but, Father, we accept that the word is pierced and the word has laid bare and the word has exposed. It is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so, Father, as those thoughts and intents get laid bare, I pray that we would uh, recognize that, submit to that, repent of what needs to be repented of, and walk in the light. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.